the mind being the nature of clarity and awareness. And His Holiness spoke about a meditation focusing on just the conventional, clear and aware nature of the mind. So how do we get to that nature of the mind when our minds are crowded with various thoughts concerning the past and the future? So try a little bit of an experiment here and try to just hold your mind steady without thoughts. But, as we know, thoughts will arise. And so when they arise, ask yourself, where did they come from? And then watch the mind very closely and see if you can See where the thought was before it arose. Where did it come from before it manifested as a thought? And when the thought ceases, ask yourself, where did it go? So this isn't just an intellectual thinking exercise. But watch the mind and see if you can catch the thought before it arises, and see if you can see where it goes when it ceases. But in the meantime, just keep your mind at a steady uh, level without deliberately thinking about anything. And when a thought has arisen in the mind, investigate where is that thought.
when we generate that thought of bodhicitta as our motivation for listening to teachings. Where did that thought come from? And where is it? And does it last without changing? Or is it changing all the time? So this isn't uh, something for Q&A, it's something to uh, explore in your meditation and see what you discover. But there are some Q&A that people said from last time. So the Singaporeans asked, on page 162, um, at the top it says, uh, the first paragraph, together clarity and cognizance allow for the appearance of objects to rise and for objects to be known and experienced. Okay, so they're asking um, does this refer to a consciousness that sees the ultimate truth of existence? No. We're just talking here about the conventional nature of the mind, whether it sees conventional truths like the table and the cup, or whether someday it will perceive the ultimate truth, emptiness. This is talking about the basic conventional nature of the mind that is clarity and cognizance, so that objects can arise in it. Okay? So when you look around the room, those objects are arising in the mind in the sense that they cast an aspect on the mind, and that's how the mind cognizes them. 
but they sure appear to exist out there, don't they? And then they asked the following uh, verse from Pramnavartika, also on the same page. Consciousness apprehends objects, apprehending them as they exist. It arises in the nature of the objects. It is generated by them as well. Okay, so they're asking if that, uh, if what was explained in the above paragraph is talking about this verse. And yes, the verse fits in with the, the paragraph above it. Okay, and some of them were wondering if the verse may also mean that we see objects through the uh, consciousness that is afflicted. Um, sometimes we do, but here it's just talking about the consciousness as, uh, uh, you know, having that quality of reflecting an object and then being able to engage with the object. When So it says consciousness apprehends the object, apprehending them as they exist. I think... Uh, my interpretation of that second line is that, you know, this is Dharmakirti speaking from a Sotantraka viewpoint where uh, things are objectively existent. And I think that's what the second line means. Okay, but the consciousness arises in the nature of the objects, okay, because of that aspect. And it is generated by them as well. In other words, you have the consciousness because there's the object and then the sense faculty. Okay. Then there are more questions here. Does the fact that different sentient beings perceive objects differently? prove that objects lack inherent existence because they don't have any unchanging characteristics that define them. I think the, you know, the thesis, what you're saying, that is true, that the fact that we perceive things differently does uh, show that things lack inherent existence. But I think the reason is... Uh, you know, because if they had inherent existence, everybody would see them in exactly the same way. Okay, so I don't think it has anything to do with them being impermanent at that point, but just, you know, if things had objective existence, we would all see them exactly the same way. Even with our senses, they would appear the same way. And... uh and then, you know, all of our opinions would be the same and what we liked, you know, what we assumed was pleasant or unpleasant, we would all agree upon all of that. Yeah. But we don't agree and uh, we all think we're right because we're grasping it in inherent existence. And then we quarrel. Yeah, we quarrel. Huh? So it, it starts with the meditation hall walls. Are they pink or are they peach? 
What do you say, Venerable Sun K? <laughs> That's not what you said a few years ago. We had a big discussion about the color of those walls. Okay. But if they were inherently existent, then we would have both seen the same color. Okay. So, um, okay. So here the syllogism might be objects lack inherent existence because they do not have objective characteristics. That could work. Okay. It seems to be what the Heart Sutra is saying in the line Shariputra, like this, all phenomena are empty, having no characteristics. They are not produced and do not cease. Here um, in the Heart Sutra, when it says they don't have any characteristics, um, on the conventional level, things do have characteristics. Okay, your shirt is blue. Yeah, and your chugu is, is golden or yellow, okay? So things have conventional characteristics, but they, they don't exist by their characteristics, okay? So they are not uh, inherently one with those characteristics. They are not separate and related from those characteristics. Okay. They just happen to be characteristics that are there at that particular time that allow us to identify something. Okay. So even the same being can perceive the same object differently depending on various factors such as lighting, distance, atmospheric conditions, emotional states, etc. I like to reflect that if an object had inherent qualities, including having an inherent identity, then it would not appear differently far away than it does up close. That's true. Yeah. If it was inherently one size, we should, you know, see it that way all the time and agree at the size and be able to measure it no matter whether the object was close or far away. Oh, what I think about is, uh, I remember the first winter that we were here, I was, maybe it was the second winter, I was in India and Venerable Jigme was here. She wasn't Venerable Jigme, but she uh, sent me some pictures and of the trees. And I wrote back and I said, oh, could you send the pictures in color? And she said, they are. <laughs> but in the winter, the trees look black, basically, don't they? They don't look green. Uh -huh. The light in the winter, or lack of light in the winter, is such that they look black. So are they black or are they green? Is the snow white or is it blue? Yeah, and I think you can make a good case for, uh, you know, because if you say it's one or the other, then you have to say this light is the 
one truly existent light that has to be there in order to see it correctly. Yeah, but that really can't be. Okay, then the second question was, does the phrase uh, arising, abiding, and ceasing in the same moment mean that these events are happening simultaneously? Or rather, does it mean that in a moment that is a short increment of time in which these three events occur linearly one after the other? I am assuming it means the latter, since something that is arising cannot be ceasing at exactly the same time, because arising and ceasing are opposite states of being. Nor can something that is abiding be ceasing, or ceasing be arising. This seems logically impossible to me. Well, look at it this way. When arising means something new is coming into existence. Abiding means that something similar, but not exactly to the, the same as what was there in the previous moment, is there. Some, you know, a, a continuum of something similar. Yeah, that's what abiding means. And ceasing means the uh, change in what was there. Now, in any moment, aren't those three happening at the same time? Something new is, about, is arising. Something that is a continuation of something before is there. And it's also changing, disappearing. Yeah. So actually, those three characteristics are happening simultaneous. Yeah. If they weren't, if they were happening sequentially, like you said, then as we talked last week, yeah, when do they stop arising and start abiding? And can you draw a line between those? You know, like, okay, here's, here's arising and there's abiding. And is there a line uh, in the middle of time to distinguish between when they finish arising and when they abide? And if arising, you know, takes some time, then doesn't the arising have a beginning, a middle, and an end so that the portion of arising arises, abides, and ceases? And then wouldn't the line in between, this part and this part, also, couldn't you break that up into arising, abiding, and ceasing? So what it's getting at is when you think about impermanence, yeah, we, our conceptual mind fails. Yeah, because the conceptual mind likes to make categories with words that are, you know, and define things exactly. But when you think about continuity, you know, when exactly is the present? 
And when does something arise? And when does it abide? And when does it cease? Because you can't actually isolate any time for any of those. Hmm? Okay, so I think it's kind of getting at that. Like, are you being born right now? No, I was born in the past. So when did the birth process stop? And why can't we say that this moment of you right now is being born? Yeah. Yeah. When did, or if you say, no, the birth is when I came out of my mother's womb. So when did that start? When did birth start? Yeah. When your mother had, had contractions? When you were still a zygote? When you crowned? When the feet came out? Yeah. When did birth start? When did it stop? Huh? Very difficult to, you know, they make on our birth certificate that we were born at, you know, I was born at 11, 11 in the morning. Yeah. Well, 11, 11, what? And how many seconds? One second, two seconds. There's 60 seconds there. And each second has a bunch of nanoseconds. Yeah. And nanoseconds seem so short except when you watch the Olympic tr swimmers. And then a tenth of a second is the difference between one guy touching it here and then some guy, you know, back a couple of meters. Yeah. Wow. That's just a, t a hundredth of a second or a tenth of a second to get from there to there. But yeah, and that's why that guy won the race. Over a hundredth of a sec second, you know. So that means that's the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal. Yeah. But who gives meaning to gold and silver medals? Why isn't the silver medal more valuable than the gold one? It seems like platinum nowadays is better than gold. You know, at least according to the airplanes. Because you start out with silver. No, no, you start out with, what do you start out with? I don't know. But there's silver, there's gold, and there's platinum. And then diamond comes in there somewhere too. But it, platinum? I mean, what's so good about platinum? I never thought of platinum as something. Is it expensive? Is it beautiful? You know? But somehow our minds make one thing better than the other. But so Spokane grew up as a town centered on silver because of all the silver mining going on 
in the panhandle of, of Idaho. So isn't silver better? Do you live in, in Spokane? Silver should be better than gold and platinum and diamond. Okay, let's go back to page 171 on the reflections. That's where we stopped last week. So, here's the reflection. One, everything that functions <clears throat> arises from a cause. Just as our body arose from a cause, so did our mind. Okay, so that's one of the, the principles of causality that we went through last week. That if it's something that functions, meaning that it produces a result, then it arose from a cause. Okay? Our body and mind function, they both arose from causes. They didn't arise causelessly. Okay. Then consider the three principles of causality. Okay. So do you remember what they were? First one? Yeah. That, it, that every effect comes about because of a cause. Yeah, by a concordant cause, and, and and the cause has to be impermanent. Yeah, usually the impermanence is the second factor, and the concordance is the third. Okay, so if we consider those three principles of causality, the only cause that could produce a moment of mind is a previous moment of mind. Now, why can't your body be... A, uh, a cause of your mind, a, a substantial cause of your mind. It's not a concordant cause. Hmm? It's not a concordant cause. It doesn't have the potential. Okay, it's, why isn't it a concordant cause? Because it has a different kind of nature. It's material. It what? Material. Yeah, okay, so it has a very different nature. Yeah. The body is material in nature. The consciousness is not. Okay. Okay, and then the third, the mind that joined with the fertilized egg to create a living being must have been a mind from a living being who had lived before and had recently died. Okay, so it has to be a concordant cause, so a previous moment in the same continuum, which would be the mind of whoever we were in the previous life, yeah, and had died, gone into the bardo, and then been reborn. Do you ever think that you had a previous life? I mean, however you old old you are, add one year, and think in that period, that amount of time ago, I was a totally different person in a totally different situation. Yeah? Does it feel like that could be correct? Or is this feeling, they're feeling like, but I'm me. And I would still think the same way then. Okay, maybe I had a, an old body or, you know, maybe I was another gender or whatever. But I still would think in English. Yeah? Do you think in a previous life that you thought in English? 
Or maybe, I mean, if you were an animal, you didn't have language. So you thought in what? Do you have a sense that you could be that entirely different than you are now? Or is there this sense like somehow I was whatever age we are now, I've always been that age. Yeah. And okay, when I was three, I couldn't talk so well. But I still thought about all the same things I'm thinking about now. Well, maybe not, you know. But there's the feeling like, yeah. And then we, and then we say, oh, so there is a permanent person that doesn't change. But that person does change a little bit from moment to moment. And then we develop a whole philosophy that the self is both permanent and impermanent. Yeah. So there were a lot of non-Buddhist schools at the time of the Buddha that thought like that. Yeah, it's one of the things that Buddha refuted and and uh, Dharmakirti refuted. So why can't something be permanent and impermanent at the same time? Yeah. Can you have something and half of it is permanent and half of it is the not permanent? Why not? Yeah, they're contradictory characteristics. But on the other hand, you're impermanent and your emptiness is permanent. Yeah, they are different. Okay, so human beings have long discussed the beginning of the universe and of mind in particular. From a Buddhist perspective, there is no beginning to either of these because all functioning things arise from their causes. Those causes arise from their causes and so on back ad infinitum. Positing a first moment of consciousness is logically untenable. If there were a first moment, it would either arise without a cause or arise from a discordant cause. Neither of these is possible. Okay? So if you say, well, there was, you know, a beginning of the universe, yeah? And, uh, yeah? So, yeah, it just began. You say, well, causelessly it began. And then you say, no, that somebody says, no, that's not possible. It's something that functions. It has to have a cause. God, God created it. Okay. Now, what, what are the features of God? Okay, what are the characteristics of God? Yeah. All powerful, um, you know, all knowing and and loving and permanent. 
God is permanent. But how can something that is permanent create? Because creation means change. Change means impermanence. Something that's permanent cannot change. So then you say, okay, maybe God isn't permanent. Then somebody says, then what is the cause of God? Who created God? What are you going to say to that one? Superman, <laughs> Superman right? <laughs> yeah, God is beginningless. But the Bible says that there was in the beginning. In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was God. So that could be beginnings. That could be the beginning. But then, you know, what created God and what created the Word? Yeah, where did they come from? Did they just pop up without a cause? You know? We don't live in a universe that where things happen randomly. There's a thing in science, you know, when they do the things with the balls and then, you know, they always come out as a curve and, and everything. And they say, you know, which ball goes where uh, is, is random, but somehow they all come out in a bell curve. I don't think it's random. You know, why does each ball fall where it is? It hits pegs. You know, did you see that thing? You didn't, there's a thing with like tons of pegs and you drop a ball and the ball bounces around between the different pegs. And if you drop enough balls, you know, and you drop them from the center point, you always get a bell-shaped curve. Yeah. And they say, oh, it's random where each one goes. Oh, this was from eighth grade math. Maybe I'm not explaining it very well. But, uh, you know, they do say some things are random. I don't think so. Okay. <clears throat> but these things are very good for us to think about. Yeah. Because, this, you know, all the study we did on Thursday night, this is where it comes in. And this is very, very important to be very clear in our minds about. Because if one part of our mind is thinking, oh, there really is a God, then are we, what, how is that going to affect our refuge? How is that going to affect our mind's receptivity to teachings on impermanence and emptiness. Okay, how is that going to affect our mind when uh, somebody we care about dies? Okay, so those kind of beliefs are quite important and they really affect, uh, you know, how we experience different things in life. And that's why it's it's quite important to think about these things. You know, especially with this whole thing of causality. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody once told me, uh, I think some, she had a relative who died, and she said, Buddhism 
is not very consoling in the face of death. Yeah, because you just get reborn. And there's no talk of going to heaven and, you know, living in a blissful environment. And that's so emotionally appealing. When somebody you care about dies, you want to think of them going to a place that's happy and being in a place that's serene. And this is somebody who had, you know, was learning Buddhism. And it made her realize, well, you know, how much do I really believe the Buddha's viewpoint? How much, you know, because it's so comforting to think that somebody is in heaven with God living in a very peaceful environment. Whereas I remember being a kid, thinking about heaven, and thinking, it's going to be so boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, oh God, you got to be with those relatives again? <laughs> Forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When George H. H. W. the the Bush, Daddy George George, died, there were these cartoons, you know, of him going up, and there was Barbara, and they had a daughter who had died when she was a, an infant, and the baby was there. Somehow the baby never aged. Yeah, and Barbara was always as old as she was when she died. And, you know, everybody stayed at the same age that they, as they were when they died, even though he had aged here on life. Now he was, yeah. So anyway, it's, you know, it's important to think about these things and see, um, you know, how, how uh, sometimes our emotions drive what, our beliefs are, yeah? Instead of reasoning, driving our beliefs, emotion does, yeah? Whatever feels comfortable or sweet or whatever, yeah? If we assert a beginning point before which nothing existed, we must say that sentient beings were born without cause. That is difficult to accept because without causes producing effects, nothing would operate. Okay, So the world started without a cause, but then after that, everything became a cause that produced an effect. But if, you know, the original thing happened causelessly, why wouldn't everything continue causelessly? And if there cause if you didn't need causes to produce effects farmers would not have to plant seeds to grow a crop children would not need to be educated and we would not take medicine to cure our illnesses although we may not know all the causes and conditions of a particular thing or event it is it definitely arose due to them mm-hmm. So what we call magic is when we don't know what the causes and conditions are. But there 
doesn't mean, magic doesn't mean there aren't causes and conditions. It just means we don't know what they are. Some people reject past and future lives for the reason that they do not see them. However, not perceiving something does not negate its existence. Cats and birds see things and dogs smell odors that we do not. On the other hand, evidence exists for future lives. If we investigate the nature of the mind, we understand that it is a continuity. Like all things, the mind exists because its causes exist. The continuity of things ceases only when its causes are exhausted or when a strong counteractive agent that can stop it is applied. In the case of a mind stream, neither of these is the case. No agent exists that can cease the continuity of mind. The continuity of mind, one moment of mind producing another, producing another, then another, then another, then another. And you can't find the dividing place between all the moments of mind because they aren't like individual uh, frames on a movie. Okay? So there's not, no external thing that can come and shut down the mind and say, you know, one moment can't produce the next. Yeah. When, when a candle's burning, yeah, there, you can run out of uh, a candle wax and then the can you know, it goes out of existence. The flame stops, you know, because of lack of a substantial cause. But actually the last moment of the flame produced heat, and that heat went out into the environment. So when, uh, when the mind separates from this body, its continuity goes on to the next life. That's in beings with afflictions. At the time of death, the coarser levels of mind, which depend on the physical body, dissolve. An extremely subtle consciousness, the primordial clear light mind, which can function apart from the coarse body, manifests. And this acts as the substantial cause for the mind of the next life. So you get down to this extremely subtle mind, and that produces, you know, is, is part of that continuity of consciousness and gives rise to the grosser states of mind of the next life. In the end, the only plausible explanation is the beginningless and endless continuity of moments of mind. Okay. Whereas something like ignorance has no traceable beginning, but it does have an end because there is a counterforce that can be applied that eliminates it. Okay. Why? Because the object that ignorance grasps or apprehends uh, does not exist. And ignorance is an erroneous state of mind. So if we develop wisdom that can see actually how things are, then that erroneous state of mind can no longer uh, survive. Another factor that supports the existence of rebirth is that people remember past lives. Although I, this is His Holiness speaking, have no clear memories of my previous lives, 
According to my mother and members of the search party who identified the 14th Dalai Lama, when I was very young, I spoke quite clearly about my past lives. My past life. Sometimes I have had the same dreams. They are vague recollections of some previous lives, as a Tibetan, Indian, and on one occasion, Egyptian. But then the memory fades. Okay. So, at the time, uh, okay, this is, I'll tell, I'll tell this story later. Our not remembering previous lives does not refute their existence. I don't think any of us remembers our experience in the mother's womb. Does Jeffrey? I don't know if he's, huh? I don't think he says that, but he remembers being an infant. Yet we were undoubtedly there, even though we don't remember it. It is difficult to recall experiences from previous lives because memory is formed with the gross levels of consciousness which are dependent on the body and brain. The latencies of memories going with our mental consciousness may not be very strong, and upon taking a new rebirth, our attention is directed toward the present life, not the previous one. So the Tibetans often, they'll talk about kids uh, who will remember previous lives. Maybe for the first two or three years of their lives, they'll say things, and then it stops. They, they forget it, you know, because the appearance of this life is so strong, it just takes over everything. You know, and the memories of the previous life are not as strong. Nevertheless, the accounts of many people who remember their previous lives have been verified. I heard of an Indian girl who described her previous life. She was a young girl in that previous life and died suddenly. So the natural process of dissolution of the levels of consciousness did not take place which may be a factor in her being able to remember her previous life. Being very young, her memory was clearer, whereas older children may not remember their previous life because their grosser level mind is fully developed and their subtle mind has become inactive. So um, at the time I wrote this book, I didn't have uh, the references to to put in the book. Uh, but by the time we got to volume five, when we talk, uh, when we're talking about uh, bodhicitta meditations and how all sentient beings have been our mother and that we've had previous weepers, by that time, different people had given me things and I put them in the book in, in a footnote. There's things online about this Indian girl that His Holiness spoke about um, because she did go back to the other village where she lived in her previous life and she remembered the people from there. And also, uh, we found one thing about a little boy. I think he was American and he was really hung up on... Um, being a, a pilot that got shot down. 
in his previous life and all the fear and everything that had to do with that. And they actually, his parents listened to him. They actually found a record of uh, somebody, you know, in the U.S. military who was flying in the Pacific, got shot down. They took the little boy out to that part of the ocean. And it was this completely cathartic experience for him being able to connect with what, with how he died in his previous life. Yeah, it was quite interesting. A little boy born into a Druze family in mm-hmm. Israel, in the north, uh, north part of Israel. And his whole family, they only speak Arabic. And when he started speaking, it's about he was kind of late, but about three years old, he started talking. He spoke English. Huh. And um, his parents didn't know English. They had to learn English to understand the little boy. <laughs> oh, wow. So people were saying, how is this possible? I mean, there's no scientific explanation yeah. for how that's possible. So that yeah. told everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's many stories, you know, like this. I think His Holiness, when he was a child, spoke Lhasa dialect, whereas he was in Amdo, where the dialect is really different than, than Lhasa dialect. And and actually, Bhikkhu uh, Analia, we should uh, he wrote it in a book, and I have the podcast. Uh, he has a friend in Sri Lanka who. When he was a child, he began chanting in Pali, but not the modern kind of Pali pronunciation that they use now, but a pronunciation and a style that they used many centuries ago. And they think that he was actually maybe a disciple of Buddha Gosa. It is possible through meditation to make grosser level minds inactive and to activate subtler levels of mind. I met a Kargyu Lama who was a very nice monk. Although he was not learned, he was very sincere and jovial, and we became close friends. One time he was very serious and told me stories about studying with his tutor as a child. Even though he would deceive his tutor and play tricks on him, after his tutor passed away, he remembered him with gratitude. One time he had such a strong experience when recalling his tutor's tremendous kindness that he almost fainted. At the time of fainting, the coarser level of mind became inactive and a subtler mind arose. This mind then remembered his previous life. So this somebody His Holiness knows. We don't need to prove the existence of previous lives to someone who is able to recollect past lives. For her, her, they are evident phenomena. However, for people who do not have such recollection, the existence of previous lives is a slightly obscure phenomenon which can be proven with reasoning. Dharmakirti does this in chapter two of his commentary unreliable cognition based on the continuity of consciousness. This is the argument I made above. Okay, 
So many people who are new to Buddhism, they say, oh, you have to take rebirth on, on, on faith, the existence of rebirth on faith. And here's holiness is saying, no, it's something that can be proven by using inference. Of course, the person you prove it to has to have certain prerequisites. They have to believe that the mind exists. They have to understand what the mind is. They have to understand about causality and uh, continuity, okay? But, you know, if you have somebody with this kind of background, then just through the force of reasoning, uh, rebirth can be proven. It's not just faith-based. Is there any talk or maybe any need to prove the existence of the different levels of subtlety of the mind? Or, or is it is that manifest? I mean, is that easy enough to access if you just have the experience? Or I, I think there. Uh, I mean, if you have the experience, then it's yeah. your experience. But even before that, we can see that our mind, our our sense consciousnesses are very gross. Our mental consciousness is more subtle. You know, when we uh, dream. The mind is even more subtle. When we're in dreamless sleep, it's even more subtle. So we can tell that just from our own experience now, that there's different states of mind, different levels of mind. Okay, But that's the, the thing now, is that people are so, you know, the mind is so entranced by external objects that all the research is done about external objects. And so the thing where His Holiness is always saying, our real laboratory is in here. But nobody looks in here. Yeah? Because you're not going to graduate from university and get a job looking in here. <laughs> you know, everybody's studying. And we're so entranced. That's why it's called the desire realm with all these objects of desire. Yeah. For something to exist, it is not necessary that the majority of people know about it and agree on it. Okay, so this is quite important. That just a lot of people believing something doesn't mean it's true. We go by this a lot. Like when we're mad at somebody, we go talk to our friend about what this other person did. And because our friend agrees with us, then we feel, yes, I'm really justified and my perception is right. But our friend's mind can be just as distorted as our mind is. Okay. So just because a lot of people, you know, and th this is the whole thing, you know, that you see now is with everybody, the country being so polarized, is everybody hangs out with people that agree with their ideas. And then they think, well, everybody agrees with my ideas, so they must be right. But, you know, that's not perfect reasoning, you know. That's, again, the reasoning, my idea is right because I think it. Or my idea is right because a lot of people agree with it. You know, none of those are our correct syllogisms, are they? It's not going to work. But people use that anyway. Okay. There may be certain species of plants and animals that only a very few people on the planet know, but they exist. 
Similarly, not everyone needs to agree that rebirth exists in order for it to exist. So some people ask, I found, uh, does rebirth exist only for Buddhists or only for people who believe that rebirth exists? And people have asked me, you know, does karma exist only for people who believe in it? In other words, if I don't believe in karma, then it doesn't, you know, that doesn't work for me. So that that's like saying, <clears throat> if I don't believe rat poison is will kill me, then if I drink it, it won't kill me. <laughs> yeah? So. Oh, if you don't believe in heaven, you can't go. You have to believe in several things, but... Oh, but then, then does it follow if you don't believe in hell, you won't go to hell? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, things should be equal. They should be equal. Yeah. Even if you cannot ascertain the existence of future lives, you can tentatively accept it without any harm. Wishing to create the causes for fortunate future lives, you will endeavor to subdue your afflictions and cultivate your good qualities. This, in turn, will help you be happier in the present because you will experience things freshly without the confusion of attachment and anger. If you find it difficult to accept past and future lives, set the topic aside and focus on being a good person in this life. Do not create trouble for others and use your life to bring calm and peace in your own mind and in the world. This is more important. If at the time of death you find there is no future life, you haven't lost anything. But if you find there is, at least you have prepared for it by living a good life now. This is better than someone who accepts future lives but does not behave properly in his daily life and thus makes problems for himself and others. The Kalamas, yeah, this is very true, isn't it? Yeah. If, if, you, if you live ethically, even if there's no future lives, you haven't lost anything. You've had a good life this life with fewer problems. Yeah. Whereas if you don't take any care with ethical concern and you just do what you want, then if there's no lives, no future lives, you, you no problem. But if there is future lives, then you have a big problem. Yeah. The columnists were people confused by the claims of various teachers and unsure what to believe. The Buddha taught the meditation on the four immeasurables love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Once they experienced for themselves the immediate benefits of these, they were joyous. The Buddha then pointed out the benefits they accrue by cultivating positive states of mind, whether or not rebirth exists. So this quote from the uh, Pali Canon. The noble disciple Kalamas whose mind is in this way without enmity, yeah, without ill will, undefiled and pure, has won four assurances in this very life. One, if there is another world, and after death, 
And if there is the fruit and result of good and bad deeds, it is possible that with the breakup of the body after death, I will be reborn in a good destination in a heavenly world. Two, if there is no other world and there is no fruit and result of good and bad deeds, still right here in this very life, I maintain myself in happiness without enmity and ill will free of trouble. Three, suppose evil results befall one who does evil. Then, when I have no evil intentions towards anyone, how can suffering afflict me since I do no evil deed? And four, suppose evil results do not befall one who does evil. Then, right here, I see myself purified in both respects. Yeah, so you get benefits right here and now, too. In essence, if there turns out to be no future lives, we do not have to worry that we wasted our time cultivating beneficial mental states through practicing the Buddha's teachings because we have already experienced benefits in this life. Furthermore, if future lives exist, we have made good preparation for them and need not fear at the time of death. So I, I can't see anybody, uh, you know, living an ethical life, and then at the time of death, regretting, oh, shucks, you know, I could have gotten drunk more, I could have slept around more, I could have shot up drugs more, why, do, you know, I could have robbed some banks and gotten some real happiness in this life. I haven't heard of anybody regretting that at the time of death. Have you? <laughs> yeah. Well... Okay, so here's another reflection. Tentatively accept the existence of past and future lives. Mm -hmm. And then two, do you see any disadvantages to doing this? Yeah, so really think about it, you know, and think what could be a disadvantage of it? Yeah. And, you know, if I think of, of people, I think the most they would say is, well, you know, there's all this stuff about virtue and non-virtue, and I like doing some non-virtuous deeds, you know? And I don't really understand why I shouldn't do them because they make me feel good. So if there is karma, then it interferes with me having happiness now because then I don't do those things, you know? Or if I do them, I feel guilty about it. Yeah, I think some people might think like that. Is it a uh, is it a way of thinking that makes sense? That Buddhism is my obstacle to having a good life because it talks about virtue and non-virtue, and I would have more fun in this life if I didn't know about Buddhism and virtue and non-virtue, because then I could do all my non-virtuous things and have great happiness doing them without feeling guilty about it. So Buddhism is the fault of my unhappiness. Huh? Somebody could possibly think that. 
ಯಾಕಂದ್ರೆ ವೈ ಬಿಕಾಸ್ ಫಾರ್ ದಟ್ ಪರ್ಸನ್ ಹ್ಯಾಪಿನೆಸ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಅನ್ಹ್ಯಾಪಿನೆಸ್ ಆಲ್ ಕಮ್ಸ್ ಫ್ರಮ್ ಔಟ್ಸೈಡ್ ಯಾ ದಟ್ ಪರ್ಸನ್ ಹ್ಯಾಸ್ ನೋ ಅಬಿಲಿಟಿ ಟು ಲುಕ್ ವಿತಿನ್ ದಮ್ಸೆಲ್ವ್ಸ್ ಇಫ್ ದೇ ಡಿಡ್ ದೆನ್ ದೇ ವುಡ್ ಸೀ ದಟ್ ಬೈ ಕೀಪಿಂಗ್ ಗುಡ್ ಎಥಿಕಲ್ ಕಾಂಡಕ್ಟ್ ದೇ ಫೀಲ್ ಹ್ಯಾಪಿಯರ್ ರೈಟ್ ನೌ ಇನ್ ದಿಸ್ ಲೈಫ್ ಯಾ and they would see that by abandoning negativities that would free them from guilt not buddhism changing what what its tenets are and saying non-virtue is virtue but actually not doing the non-virtue is what would free them from guilt yeah but many people don't think like that everything is so external yeah not like my mind's creating any of it Does it help you to understand certain events, memories or thoughts in your life when you think about rebirth? Yeah. When I look around and I look at the group of us, okay? How many of you grew up Buddhist? Was your family Buddhist? Maybe yeah. Was your family Buddhist? No, it was socialist. Oh dear. How about your family? No. Okay, the rest of our fa- rest of us? Hmm? Socialist. Yeah. Okay. Bunch of Catholics, a few Protestants. Yeah. one lonely persecuted Jew no now there's two of us two lonely persecuted Jews <laughs> always persecuted <laughs> yeah so um you know like how come we're all Buddhists now yeah my parents you know because usually they talk about nature and nurture my mother was emphatic there are no buddhist genes in your heritage <laughs> yeah and my brother wrote me he did one of these genealogical things and he came out what was it 99% ashkenazi jewish wow. <laughs> yeah So I don't know what I am but we are brother and sister. So, you know? So my mother was right. Yeah, you know. Okay. Okay. No, no Buddhist genealogically, you know? Okay, what about nurture? Yeah, when did you first see anything Buddhist? Yeah. When did you first think about anything Buddhist? Mm-hmm. For when you were 14? Oh, a Chinese restaurant. Yeah, and seeing the big Buddha the, you rub the belly. Yeah. Maitreya. Yeah. When I was maybe 8, I my mom and grandmother went to the um what do you call that place? Secondhand store. Goodwill. Mm. Went to Goodwill all the time and there was a some kind of a statue of thousand arm chinrizi that i remember oh and you know it stuck in my mind i had no idea what it was but uh-huh but you know 
how much were we influenced by by Buddhism when we were growing up? You know? So, nature-wise, nurture-wise, so how come all of us are Buddhists? How do you account for that? What? cause of weirdness. <laughs> Is it genealogical? <laughs> Is it, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's quite interesting, you know? Like, why are all of us Buddhists? If you talk about nature and nurture, we should not be. Yeah, we should all be doing different things in our lives, especially when you consider the kind of, you know, what what our parents had in mind for us, how we, what, you know, what we were implanted with as youth about what kind of adults we were supposed to be. Yeah, my parents didn't say, oh, I want you to grow up to be a Buddhist nun. You know, I never thought that when I was little. Yeah, I don't think any of you did. Yeah, so... The only thing really that can account for this is karma, can't it? You know? What else? It's a little bit off, but um, going in the direction of habit, um, I got asked in Germany, why are so many um, Buddhist teachers um, Jewish, you know, or came from Jewish traditions? Mm. What do you think? What kind of habitual action? Oh, yeah, we've had lots of discussions about this. Okay, there's a few, I think, reasons. First of all, the emphasis on logic and reasoning is very strong in in Buddhism. You know, the idea of the Talmudic rabbi. Judaism. Judaism. Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) I confuse the two. Um, You know, the Talmudic rabbi who studies, who debates, over this detail and that detail of the Torah, you know. So that same emphasis on study, on debating, is found in Buddhism, too. So it's, you know, something that goes along. Then also, I think, in the case of uh, Jews in the West, uh my starting with my generation, people really assimilated. So there wasn't uh, such a strong Jewish identity. Uh, our parents didn't, you know, were more interested in in becoming successful in this country and getting the American dream. Not all Jews. I mean, there's a big cohort of of. Uh, Orthodox Jews, but I'm talking about the the ones who become who become Buddhist uh, mostly. Um, so there was a, a a feeling of a lack of spirituality, yeah, a need for spirituality. Also in Judaism, you know, they have this spiritual tradition with the Kabbalah, but you're not supposed to learn that until you are at least middle age and very well. 
uh, trained in the Jewish principles and so on. Uh, so I think there was a feeling of needing something. Yeah. Um, what else? I don't know. Can you think of anything? I've heard it also suggested that just in line with this need for something spiritual is because of the Holocaust, people sort of lost, maybe not lost faith, but mm. the, it was hard to just accept an old religious view at that point yeah. because it was so clear that things aren't so simple and God won't just take care of everything. So, you know, have to start searching for some, yeah. some more reasonable way of explaining our reality. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the Holocaust really shattered many people's faith. So what are your ideas about Catholics? Well, so many Catholics also become Buddhists. <laughs> um, there's a few things. I think that the, um, the attraction to the iconography, the symbolism mm -hmm. with the Tonkers and the statues, um, mm -hmm. for me it was I wanted a better explanation on <laughs> creation, how I got here. I was never satisfied with the blind faith and Adam and Eve and being inherently flawed. I mean, there was just a lot of unsettledness about believing all of that without question. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, for me personally, I used to love the um, reading the stories of saints and Buddhism mm -hmm. with its great masters and its great yogis and yoginis and you know monastics it just really resonated that there was another there was a lineage like in buddhism as well mm -hmm. of people who really got it on some level yeah many catholics have said to me that they really liked uh you know, if you go in a Catholic church, there's candles and incense and all sorts of images. And so all of that felt quite uh, familiar. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, one of the things was about suffering because I was very much aware of suffering all my life, as far back as I can remember. And Christianity didn't have a satisfying explanation of that. You know, the world is wonderful. God made this wonderful world and he loves us, but what about the suffering? So they, yeah, there was no satisfying explanation. So Buddhism mm -hmm. just felt very right with yeah. that So this is from a while back. Um, so Jana asks, so something immaterial cannot come from something material, but something immaterial can be influenced by something material? Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? The mind is influenced by the body? Yeah. The mind is, can be influenced by the body, and the body can be influenced by the mind. But they aren't substantial causes of each other. Okay. And then someone else asks, I know it's true, but why do we lack clarity of past lives? We just have notions. What blocks it? Do you remember where you put your car keys? yesterday yeah do, do you remember um but yeah do you yeah do you remember chickpeas <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, just just things in this life we can't even remember. So why is it so unusual that we can't remember previous lives? And then Jana had another question. When the mind attains nirvana, the mind stream continues to exist, but in a state of nirvana. The moments of mind, one after another, never cease. Is that accurate? Yeah. And then for our hearts, yeah, there's still a continuity of consciousness when there's nirvana. And then they say that then the Buddha helps him at some point to enter the bodhisattva vehicle and uh, create all the merit in the bodhisattva vehicle and attain Buddhahood. And consciousness doesn't stop at Buddhahood either. And then she added, it seems that many former Mormons are drawn to Buddhism for the same reason you stated, lost spirituality, and were then drawn to Buddhism, a strong feeling of needing something. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel that need for something. Yeah, I think that's the cause. Yeah, a feeling of, of in our society, you know, that there's something missing. Yeah. I just wanted to add that I think um, sexuality can be explained by rebirth and past lives. I really haven't come across that a lot in Buddhism, what honestly. Like what? Like your gender of your previous life will influence, you know, your sexuality of the next life mm -hmm. or the current life. And in that book, um, Rebirth and Early Buddhism by Bhikkhu Nalio, he talks about some young girls who remembered being men in previous lives and they supposedly had masculine characteristics. Hmm. Interesting. This will be the last question. For someone to come into this like, like life like Jeffrey, having very clear cognition like in the cot, and like moving his arm like this, trying to like get attention, like ah, what kind of... Um, what work do you have to do to be able to come in like that? Like, I don't know. I, I, this is an odd question. But it's just something like, what? For him to have that clarity where mm -hmm. others don't. So what do you think would create the cause for that? From what you know about Buddhism and, and the mind, what would create the cause for that? You're in total loss? Okay, a lot of yeah, huh? Concentration, yeah, purification, aspiration. What's the other one you said? Uh, a car, you know, the virtue you create, and then dedicating it for that kind of thing. So we'll stop here. We're on page 175. And the, the, the next part I should tell you is really interesting. It's, it's uh, a condensation of a sutra that uh, Geshe uh, Dadonamya translated some years back and sent to me, you know, and it's a sutra, uh, you know, about rebirth asking questions and so I I uh, you know shorten I gave a synopsis of some of the different questions and answers and that's the next section.